Well, good morning again. Really good to see you. Uh, last Sunday, I was up in Redeemer Church in Ealing, preaching up there. That's uh, a church that we partner with as part of the advanced move to churches. I was up there a year before to appoint elders, and it was great to go back a year on and see how brilliantly they are doing in that part of uh, uh, West London. Very cosmopolitan, very diverse place. Great to see them flourishing, building a fantastic church in Ealing. Um, tomorrow, Grace and I have got a, we're going on a day trip to France because the Echo are doing a cheap deal, but we're also <laughs> taking an advantage to go and see Samuel and Veronique in Cherbourg, who uh, lead Cherbourg Baptist Church. So as those of you, part of us know, will know, Veronique's been unwell with cancer and their church has seen some real breakthrough uh, in terms of people coming to faith, but also needs to see some more breakthrough, particularly in terms of finding a new premises to meet in. So I will send greetings from us, and it'd be great if we can keep someone Veronique in that church in our prayers as well, just 60 miles across the water. Think of them if you go and walk on the beach. Sherbourg, just across there, pray for them. Uh, if you are new here this morning, it's great to have you. We have these welcome booklets by the front door. We'd love you to take one of those. And also, if you were able to fill in a Connect card and get it back to one of us, that would really help us. We'd love to stay in touch, drop you an email, give you a call in the week. So thanks for coming answer any questions you might have about us. Right, we are in December, so the building is looking lovely and festive. We got our Christmas tree up at home yesterday, got the uh, biggest Christmas tree we could get on top of the car. The kids are not going to have any presents because the Christmas tree was so expensive. (laughs) That's fine by me. Uh, And we have lots coming up in terms of what's happening for Christmas at Gateway. So, Next Sunday is our last regular Sunday with morning services at 5.02, our other congregation, and here. Uh, And then the week after that, the 16th, it all starts to get different. So on the 16th, there is a service at the normal time, 10.45, at our other congregation, 5.02 Ashley Road, which you are all welcome to go to as well if you want to go to a morning service. That afternoon, we have family carols here. The following Sunday, the 23rd, there is an internationally-themed Sunday here where we're going to have a number of people from different uh, nationalities, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, talking about how they celebrate Christmas in their culture. We're going to have a bit of a... It'll just be for an hour, 10.30 to 11.30, and that will be for both our congregations to come together. And then that evening, we've got a traditional carol service down at 5.02. Christmas morning, we're here for an hour, 10 to 11. On the Sunday the 30th, we're back here for a time of host and testimony. You have been emailed those information if you're on our email system, if you're on church suite. If you're not, please do. There are also posters up which set that out. We, of course, have our little flyer for some of our Christmas services. Encourage you to take those, deliver them to your neighbours, post them through doors, invite people. And next Saturday is the first of our real Christmas events. We have our Christmas fair down at 502 Ashley Road. Got a load of different stalls, exhibitors. We've got people in the church doing stuff. We've also got other local businesses. We've got cakes and gin, which is always good, and decorations and door bows, whatever they are, and wreath making and all kinds of great stuff going on. So next Saturday, 4 till 6, 502 Ashley Road. Again, take a bunch of these. Invite your friends. It's going to be a really good event. Before then, next Friday, this coming Friday, is the first Friday of the month. First Friday of the month, we gather to pray here at 7 in the morning. If you're able to get here, we'd love to see you without that. That is our last first Friday of 2018. So if you can get here, please do. 
If you can't actually make it here with us physically at 7 o'clock on Friday morning, please take some time during the day uh, specifically to pray for what we're doing as a church with God's blessing on us. The mission he's called us to here, set some, uh, maybe write it in your diary, set an alert on your phone, remind yourself, points during the day to ask God's blessing on what we're doing here in Paul and Bournemouth through Great Gateway Church. Okay, let's get into the scripture. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. We're doing a series looking through Acts, which we started at the beginning of the year. We've had a few gaps, and we're going to carry on in January. Uh, Just got this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we'll have the break over Christmas before we get to 2019. And we've called this series Spirit's Empowered Mission, which is what the book of Acts is all about. It's about uh, God empowering people through his Holy Spirit to go on a mission telling people the good news of Jesus. And uh, there are certain phrases that we keep using in this series. We talk about, let's do it again. The book of Acts is a 30-year history from the day on which Jesus returned to his Father in glory. The Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost on the first believers. And then this amazing journey that uh, people go on around the Roman Empire, as it was then, spreading the news about Jesus, starting new churches. And one of the slogans that we keep using is, let's do it again. What could God do amongst us? in the next 30 years. And we talk about the book of Acts, keep talking about it being a model and a challenge and a dream. The book of Acts gives us something of a model of what church life can look like. It also provides us with a real challenge because often what we read in Acts seems to be way beyond what we're experiencing. But that causes us to dream about what God might be doing in our day. So what are we aiming for in this? I think another way you could sum it up, let's do it again. Model, challenge, dream, spirit-empowered mission. What we're looking for is that we might be a community which is more Paul and Bournemouth than Paul and Bournemouth. We're looking to see Jesus build here a kind of a redeemed city within the city, that his church should be an outpost, a colony of heaven, in which we are demonstrating to the town around us what it is like to live in the light of the good news of Jesus, to know him at work in us, to know his Holy Spirit empowering us, to know relationship with the Father. That's what it's about, a city within a city, an outpost, a colony of heaven. Now, today's story, Acts chapter 18, happens in the Peloponnese. Let's have a picture. Oh, look. Just think about that for a moment. Hmm. It's that time of year when everybody's thinking, where can we go next summer? <laughs> Looks nice there, doesn't it? Anyway, move on swiftly. Sounds very nice. What we're looking at in Acts 18 is something more than a nice beach. What we're looking for, what we see in this story is growing in mission and growing in team for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the city. So let's turn to Acts chapter 18. It's page... 1114 in the church Bibles. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, with Paul's right there, and let's talk about Corinth, the city. Now, Paul had, the Apostle Paul had been in the city of Athens, which was the high center of Greek learning and culture. And he's had a successful mission trip in Athens, but he doesn't rest on his laurels. Richard got it. Anyway, but he heads to Corinth after being in Athens. Uh, And Corinth is about 50 miles away from uh, uh, Athens, and he'd have walked there, and it would have been about a two-day journey. 
to travel from Athens to Corinth. And we think that Paul got to Corinth in March in the year 50 AD, and he stayed there till September the following year, AD 51. Now, let's uh, remind ourselves of where we've got to to get to Acts 18. You can press a button again. So the gospel starts in Jerusalem, and then there's another great church starts in Antioch, and Paul and his friends go off, and they travel, and they start churches in all these towns, uh, Derby and Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, you can press it again, and then they try and go further, and the Holy Spirit stops them from getting into certain parts of territory they want to go to, but then, press it again, Andy, uh, they uh, get on a boat, they feel called by God over to uh, Philippi and Macedonia, and then from Philippi, they, he travels down to Thessalonica and Berea, and then to Athens, and then to Corinth, which is where we are today, and then Acts 18 finishes with Paul leaving Corinth and traveling back at first to Ephesus and then going back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch and then he goes back to visit the churches which he'd first planted years before with Barnabas. That's where he's been, that's where we are today. Now, Athens, where he had been before getting to Corinth, was the center of Greek learning and culture, but it was a bit of a hollow place, really. In Acts 17, verse 21, it says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. A kind of a hollow place. It just wasn't much happening. It was just a place of, of hot air, really. And Corinth was a much more dynamic city. It was a much bigger city. It was much more important uh, commercially. It was on an, on an isthmus. You can't really see it on that map, but where the Peloponnese, that uh, bit at the bottom, that blob at the bottom of Greece is, that's where Corinth is. And uh, uh, there was a harbour on both sides of this kind of narrow neck of land connecting uh, Corinth to mainland Greece. And so there's two harbours, one facing Italy on one side and the other facing Asia. And that meant that this was a key trade route. It also meant that this was the easiest way to cover a lot of ground, that rather than sailing all the way around, if you could just cross that little isthmus where Corinth was, about four miles, you could cut miles and miles off your journey and rather having to sail all that way round. And so what they would do is they would carry cargo and even small ships across that four-mile little gap where Corinth was to get from one side of the ocean to the other. There were various attempts to try and build a canal so that rather than carrying stuff, they could just sail through. Uh, the Nero, when he was Caesar, tried to build a canal using 6,000 Jewish prisoners of war for slave labor. Didn't get very far. Finally, the Corinthian Canal was built in 1893. There it is. Unfortunately, it was never really big enough to be of much use commercially, and so to this day, it's much more of a tourist attraction rather than being of any commercial use. And it turned that whole peninsula into an island. Now, at the time that Paul arrived in Corinth, this was the biggest city in Greece. And it was a city which had had a bit of a troubled history. It had been um, part of what was called the Achaean League. Achaea was the name for this region at the time. And at one point, Corinth and its allies had declared war on the uh, city-state of Sparta. And if you know what the Spartans were like, never a good idea to declare war on the Spartans, especially as the Spartans were in alliance with Rome. And so there was a big battle, and Corinth in 146 BC was essentially destroyed in this battle. And then in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth as a Roman colony. It's in Greece, 
but it's going to be an outpost of Rome. It's going to be a colony of Rome. And so Caesar moved into the city of Corinth. Lots of Romans, uh, former soldiers, tradesmen, laborers, those kind of people. And the success of Corinth was pretty much guaranteed because of its position, because of where it was on this key trading route, on this narrow isthmus of land. And so this city was founded, which was Roman and was self-sufficient and was all about business, commerce, making money. It was also a very religious place. It was dominated by the Acrocorinth. This is the remains of the temple of uh, Aphrodite at the top of the Acrocorinth. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and Corinth was also notorious for sexual immorality. There's a temple, another temple in Corinth, where they found many terracotta models of uh, of body parts, and uh, these are thought to be kind of offerings to the gods because so many people would have had sexually transmitted diseases in Corinth that they were making models of their genitals and leaving them before the god in the hope that they'd be healed. Fat chance of that. <laughs> it was also a place which was big into sport. There was a big athletic competition which also involved music and poetry every other year. It was the biggest kind of games outside the Roman, uh, outside the Olympic Games. It was a very cosmopolitan place. If you think about modern comparisons, Athens would have been more like Oxford, and Corinth would have been more like LA. Big and brash and multicultural, full of self-made people with self-made attitudes. And so there's so many ways in which the city of Corinth is very similar to contemporary Britain. It was a place which was very self-sufficient and very self-congratulatory. They would definitely have all played I did it my way at their funerals. There was obsession with how you stood out in terms of your peer groups. Just like today, people can be obsessed with their social media status. In, in Corinth at this time, people were obsessed with their social status and prestige. There was great emphasis upon competitiveness. That was seen in business and it was seen in sport. Just like today, we have a hugely competitive culture in which we live where it's all about getting ahead and where we have so much focus on who wins, so much money pouring into the football premiership league. It's all about competition. That's what we like. That's what we admire. And Corinth was like that. It was a place where traditional values were kind of undermined and undone. And we see that in our culture where in so many of our moral views as a society now, traditional values have just been kind of given a complete kicking over the last 50 years. And it was a place where the trainers that you wore and the car that you drove really counted. How you looked, how you appeared really mattered. And so Corinth in the first century has so many parallels with Britain in the 21st, and Paul's mission as he goes there is to build a different kind of city in the city. Let's pick it up again. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern, whatever. And you can almost imagine him going, whatever. Right, three things. Mission is about people because people matter. Now look at all the people who are in this passage, people who are named and also the people who aren't named. You've got Aquila and Priscilla, Claudius, Silas, Timothy, Titius Justus, Crispus and his household, Gallio, Sosthenes, the Jews, the Gentiles, the crowd. Now Corinth was a great, big, impressive, money-making city, but the focus of this story is not on the institutions, it's not on the businesses, not on the temples, not on the athletic games. The focus in this story is on the people. And I think there's a lesson for us in that, because we can get overly concerned by the institutions. We can be overly concerned by what's happening with the government, by what's happening with the banks, by what's happening by, dare I say it, Brexit. But the point of this story is that people matter. People matter. And you see that in the way that Paul and his team increases. And Paul's team increases with the introduction of Aquila and Priscilla. They're from Pontus, which is on the Black Sea coast in what we now call Turkey. And they'd been in Rome, and uh, they were Jewish, but they'd come to believe in Christ and Uh, Perhaps they were founding members of the church in Rome, and they got kicked out because Claudius, the emperor, kicked all the Jews out of Rome for a time. And Corinth was the kind of city that refugees went to because it was just that kind of diverse cosmopolitan place where you could go and get your head down and crack on. And they become co-workers with Paul, and they are a key couple in the history of the early church. They appear a number of times in the story of the church in the New Testament. Now, Paul was a great example of a single man on a mission. Paul was not married. Paul was on his own, but he was committed to mission. Great example of that, how a single person can function in mission. Aquila and Priscilla are a married couple, but they're also a great example of what it is to be on mission. And both Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, they share a lot of things in common. They're, They're 
All three of them are very practical. They're tent makers by trade, and so they're in Corinth in this city. They need to survive, and so they get down to making tents. They get on in business, as everybody else in Corinth seems to be doing. And they're also uncompromising in their commitment to the gospel to Jesus, to furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've got this great example. This great little team starts to form in Corinth. Paul, single guy, Quilla and Priscilla, married couple, equally committed to the mission, committed to one another because people matter. And then some faithful team members who've been partnering with Paul for a long time, they pitch up and turn, uh, pitch up and, and join in. Silas and Timothy. Now, Paul had left them behind in Berea, where they've been looking after the new church which had been planted there. But then they come and join Paul in Corinth, and when they arrive, that frees Paul up for full-time ministry. Now he doesn't have to work making tents in the way he was previously. Uh, Silas and Timothy turn up, they free Paul up, he's able to get on with full-time preaching. And in this we see that Paul wasn't a one-man band. He's very reliant on his teammates. We can think about the Apostle Paul, this amazing towering figure, figure who towers over the story of Christianity, the great missionary, the great apostle, the one who forges new territory all the time, but he's very dependent upon his teammates. And the way that the gospel advances in Corinth, the way that Paul is freed up to preach Jesus, is because he's got friends who are with him, partnering with him. You know the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go along. If you go alone, if you want to go far, go together. And uh, that seems to be a, a, a proverb, a motto by which Paul would have lived as well, that he didn't just go off on his own to go fast. No, he went with others. He always teamed because people matter. Now, this raises a question for us in terms of our commitment to the team, because in the mission that God has called us to, if we're to grow in mission and to grow in team here at Gateway Church, we need this kind of commitment to one another, this kind of commitment to team as well. One of the ways that we express that is through church membership, that we encourage people to actually join in membership of the church, not merely to attend. And church membership is really a commitment to partner together for the gospel. Why? Because people matter, and people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul's mates, Silas and Timothy, turn up, Paul's free to preach full-time, And as he does that, he meets with both success and with failure. Sometimes it's success, people respond to the message he's preaching. Sometimes it's failure, people resist and oppose what he's saying. Now, that, I think, should be encouraging to us. Certainly, it's encouraging to me as a preacher that uh, if the Apostle Paul saw success, well, that's great, that's encouraging, but also if at times he didn't meet with success, if he met with apparent failure, also... In some way, that's encouraging as well, because it encourages me that uh, I can expect success and failure as I preach. And if Paul failed at times, well, it's not so bad if I do as well. So I think there's a kind of a reassurance for all of us actually here. If even the Apostle Paul wasn't always successful as he told people about Jesus, we shouldn't expect that we will be either. Kind of takes the pressure off us. But people matter. And uh, Paul preaches to them about Jesus, and the sad reality is that most of his own people, the Jews, resist him, but the Jewish leader of the synagogue, Crispus, and his whole household, they come to faith. Now, our responsibility, like Paul, is to speak to people about Jesus 
the Messiah. We have that responsibility. Those of us who know Jesus have a responsibility to speak to others about Jesus because people matter. Mission is about people. But it's not our responsibility how they respond. We, we can't afford to be indifferent about the gospel. We can't afford to be indifferent about people, precious people made by God who need to hear the gospel but we trust Jesus for the response. Sometimes, like Christmas, they'll respond gladly, joyfully. Other times, they'll resist and object. Mission is about people, because people matter. Second thing we can see from this story is that mission is risky. Did you uh, see this guy, John Allen Chow, who uh, was killed a week or so ago in a completely backwaters place, literally a backwaters place, the Sentinelese island in the Andaman archipelago, kind of near India, but not really India, miles from anywhere, really. And this is a, a, an island with this Sentinelese people. I don't know how many people there are, might only be about 50 of them. They're a Stone Age tribe who are completely untouched by the outside world. Nobody ever goes there. Actually, it's illegal. The Indian government has said nobody is allowed to go there. And if anybody does approach that island, they tend to get shot with arrows, which is what happened to this guy, and he was killed. Uh, completely unreached people, nothing known about them at all. Now, John Allen Chow, we might question his strategy and his wisdom, but he certainly loved Jesus and wanted these people to know Jesus. And proved that mission can be risky. He was killed by those islanders. They're not going to get his body back because nobody can go to the island to get the body because you can't go there. Now, Paul's experience of mission was always success and setback. Paul always experienced that. He had successes and he had setbacks. He gets knocked down, but he gets back up again. And it seems that when he goes to Corinth, he feels particularly intimidated by Corinth, by that place, by that city. When he writes to the Corinthian church later, he says to them, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. The way that Paul approached the city of Corinth was weakness, fear, trembling. Now again, I find it quite reassuring that the apostle Paul got scared. Again, we think about Paul, this towering figure in the history of the church, gets knocked down, gets back up again. He just seems so tough, so bold, and yet he says he was fearful and trembling about going to Corinth. And I think that's reassuring for us because we can at times feel fearful and trembling when it comes to mission. If Paul got scared, well, it's not surprised if it's surprising if at times we will also. And I think with Paul going to Corinth that he probably felt much more comfortable back in Athens. Think by the kind of personality he had and the kind of education he had, he probably felt quite at home in Athens because Athens was a place where people didn't do anything except talk about the latest ideas. And Paul was an ideas man and he was, a talk and he was good at talking about ideas. And so you can imagine Paul being very comfortable sitting with the other philosophers in Athens, talking about ideas, talking about the gospel, talking philosophy, probably felt right at home there, whereas Corinth was a much more intimidating place. It's this aggressive, self-centered, selfish, status-obsessed city. And to Paul, as he went there, it just looked pretty scary. And while he's there, he has a vision. God gives him a vision. And the Lord says to him, don't be silent. Now, that's interesting because it's 
kind of hard to imagine Paul ever being silent. He's, he's the writer of all these amazing letters we have in the Bible. He's the great preacher. He's the great proclaimer of the gospel. And yet the Lord says to him, don't be silent. And so it seems that the temptation even for Paul in this scary city was to keep his mouth shut. Now it's easy for us to be silent. It's easy for us to feel a little bit self-conscious, a little bit embarrassed perhaps, a little bit intimidated perhaps in different settings when it comes to talking about our faith, when it comes to talking about Jesus. But I believe that what the Lord says to Paul here would also say to us, don't be silent. Let's speak. I know myself at times, there are times when I just think, oh, it's much easier to stay silent, just to steer the conversation in a slightly different direction or just to kind of avoid it, just make small talk, just be British and polite and then move on. But the Lord would say, don't be silent. Let's speak. Now imagine the encouragement that Paul must have felt. He'd come to Corinth with fear and trembling, this big intimidating city, and God speaks to him and says, don't be silent, don't worry, things are going to be okay. And that must have been so reassuring and encouraging for Paul in that place. Now this was a vision that the Lord gave to Paul, not to us. It's important as we read Acts to keep reminding ourselves of this, that this is description, not prescription. This isn't a vision that God has given to us. God spoke to Paul these words. Don't be silent, don't be afraid. I've got many people in the city, keep on speaking. But we can use the vision that God gave to Paul for our encouragement. You see, we know, we do know that God is with us. God said he, to Paul he was with Paul, but God is with us. We know that. We know that God infills us by his Holy Spirit. We know that God is present with us. And God speaks to Paul and says, that I have many people in this city. And I want us to believe that God has many people in this city as well. That in Paul and Bournemouth, there are many people whom, upon whom God has put his hand, even if at the moment we don't see it. At the least, we should turn that into our prayer. Lord, let it be true that you've got many people in this city. On Friday, as we focus on praying for God's work amongst us, it'll be a great theme to pray for. God, I want to believe that you've got many people in this city. One of the... Uh, things that God's been stirring in my heart again the last few days is something which he spoke to me years and years ago when I was uh, doing youth work at Stony Bible Week, big event we used to run, a line which I, I felt God give to me, which was thousands of churches and churches of thousands, kind of a prophetic prayer and cry, God give us thousands of churches and churches of thousands, and it's a a line of prayer. I haven't prayed for a long time, to be honest. In just the last few days, I felt God stirring me with that thought again and daring to pray that prayer again. Why not in our day? Why might we not see thousands of churches started? And why might we not see churches which are made of thousands of people? Why not? Let's not be afraid. Yes, mission can be risky, but God is with us. Third thing is that mission is compassionate. The Apostle Paul stays for what for him is a long time in Corinth. He's there for 18 months. 
Normally he moves on much faster than that from one town to another starting churches, but God's spoken to him. It's a big city, there's a great work to do. There's many people in the city who God has got his hand on, and so he stays there for 18 months proclaiming Jesus Christ, but almost inevitably that provokes more opposition. In verse 10, God speaks to Paul and says, I am with you and no one is going to attack you. And then in verse 12 it says, while Gallio is proconsul, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul. What's going on there? God says, no one's going to attack you. A couple of verses later it says, they made a united attack upon him. What is going on? But what was going on was that the attack they tried to make against him was going to come to nothing. It was going to be foiled. It was going to fall to the ground. They take Paul before the authorities. They take him before the proconsul. And the proconsul is a really senior figure in the Roman hierarchy. Gallio, this uh, ruler of this part of the empire. They take Paul before him. And Paul often runs into the authorities. We see it again and again in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, we read about when Paul went to Cyprus. And there, another proconsul, Sergius Paulos, listens to Paul and actually comes to faith. He becomes a believer. In Acts 16, we read about Paul and Philippi, and Paul gets dragged before the magistrates there. And on that occasion, they act contrary to how they should have done as Roman magistrates, and they just beat Paul and Silas up and chuck them in prison, which they shouldn't have done. Here, Paul gets dragged before Gallio, and Gallio does what Roman law demands that he doesn't listen to this mob who are baying for Paul's blood. He says, actually, there's nothing here for me to get involved with. This is just about you Jews and your religion. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to get involved in it. That's exactly what he should have done. He doesn't listen to the mob, but then he doesn't control the mob either. And after he's cleared them out of the courthouse, they turn on Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and Sosthenes gets a right pounding. And it's a little bit unclear in the story as to who it is that is beating Sosthenes up. Now, it might have been the Jews themselves who are frustrated that their attempts to prosecute Paul have been unsuccessful. And Sosthenes is the leader of the Jewish community. He's meant to make sure this thing works. And so it might have been that the Jews themselves are beating up Sosthenes in frustration. A bit like our scenes that we've seen in Pakistan over the last few weeks around the case of Aisha Bibi, the Christian woman who was uh, condemned in Pakistan for blasphemy uh, against uh, Muhammad and Allah, uh, all completely ridiculous, of course, and then she was uh, acquitted, and there were riots because the crowds were unhappy, the mob was unhappy that she was not going to be strung up and killed, and somewhat shamefully, our own government refusing asylum to Asia Bibi because they're afraid that uh, Pakistani communities in Britain would riot here as well, which is, I think, gross cowardice on the part of our government. But maybe it was that kind of setting where the Jewish crowds, in this case, in Corinth, were so frustrated that Sosthenes hadn't been successful in getting Paul strung up that they decided to beat Sosthenes up. Maybe it wasn't the Jews. It might have been the Roman crowds who were always looking for an opportunity to beat up some Jews. And this looks like a great opportunity to beat up a Jew, and so they give Sosthenes a good kicking. Either way, we don't know. But either way, Sosthenes takes a pounding. And then we get to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And the first verse in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus 
by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes. Is this the same Sosthenes? We can't be entirely sure, but church history assumes that he is, and it seems most likely, uh, not least because the name Sosthenes only appears in these two places in the whole of the New Testament. Here, in the book of Acts, Sosthenes getting kicked to pieces in Corinth, and in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he sends a letter from himself and from Sosthenes. So we can assume it's the same man, and if that's the case, it's absolutely fascinating, because the previous leader of the synagogue, Crispus, had become a Christian, had become a follower of Jesus, and so it looks like Sosthenes had then replaced Crispus. Crispus is now following Jesus. The other members of the synagogue kick Crispus out. They appoint Sosthenes as leader in the synagogue instead. And Sosthenes then becomes the one who is leading the charge in trying to get Paul strung up. And now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and saying, this letter is from me and from our brother Sosthenes. What went on? Well, we're not told, but you can imagine the story. We can paint a picture. You can imagine that when Sosthenes had got beaten up by the crowd, you can imagine that actually the person who went to pick him up and look after him was the Apostle Paul. You can imagine that because Paul himself knew all too well what it was like to get beaten up. He knew what that was like. He knew how it felt. And you can imagine Paul that rather than gloating that his enemy has got his just desserts, which is my, how you might feel. This guy was trying to get me strung up. He's now got a kicking. That feels good. You can imagine, actually, that Paul was far more godly than that, and rather than gloating over his enemy getting what he deserved, instead the Apostle Paul goes to demonstrate the compassion of Christ to the one who had been his enemy. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's really easy to do in the abstract. It's really hard in the reality. But you can imagine Paul doing it. You can imagine him being the one. Picks Sosthenes up, cares for him, talks to him about Jesus, leads him to Christ, welcomes him as a brother. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, this letter's from me and it's from Sosthenes, our brother, he's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. That through the gospel, an enemy can become a brother. That through the gospel, there can be reconciliation of those who are fiercely opposed. When we take communion in a few minutes, we remind ourselves of that, of reconciliation, that we have been reconciled to Christ. Us, we who are opposed to Christ, who are his enemies, have been brought near to him, welcomed in, in, that he now calls us the father's adopted children, that we're now brothers and sisters of Christ, with Christ. We're reconciled to God through Christ. That's what the gospel does. The gospel mission is about compassion. And so the gospel teaches us, teaches us that people matter. Jesus came for people who are precious in his sight, and our mission must be about people. Gospel teaches us that mission can be risky, but it's a risk worth taking. 
We see that with Paul, that Paul didn't ever just give up and go and retire in the country. He didn't just sit on that nice beach in the Greek islands. He went to the place that seemed hostile, propelled by the good news of the gospel. Mission propels us to compassion because through the gospel, our enemies can become our friends, can become our brothers. This story teaches us that we need to remain alert to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul heard a vision from God. We need to be alert to God speaking to us in dreams and visions and prophetic words so that we can be encouraged and instructed about what we're to do. The Apostle Paul and his team had belief in God even when the evidence seemed very mixed, even at times when, as it was in Corinth at first, most people seemed to be rejecting the gospel rather than responding to it. They believed that God would come through. They had an expectation of growth. They believed that God had many people in that city. And Paul and his team built a different city within the city. They built a more Corinthian Corinth than Corinth was itself, a church, a redeemed people, an outpost of heaven, a colony of heaven established in that city, demonstrating the truth and the reality of Christ. Paul was on a growing mission with a growing team to the ends of the earth. And that's a mission in which we're caught up as well, a mission that grows and a team that grows. And Paul and Bournemouth to Sherborg to the ends of the earth. Let's go. Yes, Jesus, I pray that you would help us as your people here, this part of the world, that I pray you'd help us to remember that people really do matter. They're precious before you. And uh, that means that even if it seems risky at times to speak about you, to proclaim the gospel, we do so because we want precious people to be introduced to Jesus the Saviour. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with compassion. I pray that we would have compassion, we'd have uh, mercy even towards those who might oppose us, that we would, Lord, believe that by your power and your grace, even those who seem to be enemies of the gospel can become friends, can become brothers. Lord, we pray that even for those, that little band of Stone Age tribesmen on the Sentinelese island, Lord, that somehow one day, some even of them might come to know the Saviour, might come to know Jesus. Thank you, your plan, Jesus, is that people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every corner of the earth, would come to know you and be united in your praise and united in your family and ask that you'd help us. You'd help us here, Lord, at Gateway Church to be committed to that mission, to believe in that vision, to be faithful to what you've called us. Amen. Let's stand and worship him.